Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is Mark Martin, who serves a regular soldier and officer in the Royal Artillery from 1983 to 2018. Mark enlisted as a private soldier, known in artillery as a gunner, serving in every rank up to Warrant Officer Class 1. His non-commissioned final appointment was RSM of a regular MLRS, that's a multiple launch rocket system, and UAV Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Regiment. And Mark commissioned as a late entry captain in 2003 and promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in 2015. Today we're going to be talking about one of the lesser known rearguard actions on the retreat to Dunkirk. This is the Battle of Hondigam, which took place on the 27th of May 1940, when K Battery engaged lead elements of 6 Panzer Division, halting them up in the village and a vicious street fighting, firing their 18-pounder guns at ranges of 100 yards or less. Both Mark and I served with the unit, which was awarded the honour title Hondigam, in recognition of what it achieved fighting in France on that summer's day 82 years ago. So it's great to have you on the pod, Mark. Can you start off by telling us what made you join the Army and why the Royal Artillery? To an extent, I think all of that was, was relatively un, unintentional. I had no uh, intention of staying in long term. I was going to do three years, get my HGV license and go back to Pembrokeshire after having seen a little bit of the world. It didn't work out like that. You could take it back to as a teenager, I was really into motorbikes. I had a bad accident when I was 15 on one, which I shouldn't have been on, broke my leg. When I started work, I went through a series of, of pretty poor jobs and then broke my other leg in another motorcycle accident when I was 17. That gave me about four months to uh, think about where my life was and where it was going. I think it was the day after I got my leg out of plaster. I think I just had a bit of an epiphany and, and said to my mother, I'm going to join the army. A couple of weeks later, I tipped up at uh, Pembroke Dock recruiting offices, long haired. Certainly didn't look like a uh, sort of role model candidate they'd be after. And then a couple of months later, I found myself at Sutton Coalfield going through the selection process. 
what I wanted to join was the Royal Welsh Fusiliers because there were lads in my town and that's that's where the, where they didn't what they'd gone into and it and it seemed quite attractive but whilst I was there the uh, a quite wily recruiting senior NCO said to me there's uh, and this was in September there's no intake for the Royal Welsh Fusiliers until February but if you go into the Gunners in November you can do your basic training use it as a beat up and then transfer to Royal Welsh Fusiliers at the end of that uh, he lied to you basically absolutely I had no job <laughs> I was skint I was desperate to get in and, and I took what was on offer and I, and I just swallowed it hook line and sinker and then in 1984 at the end of basic training we were called in one at, one at a time into the troop commander's office and now troop commander at that stage was a WO2 gin jives and when he gave me a debrief on my performance during basic training which had gone pretty well well, um, he then asked me if I had anything to say when I then said, well, can I now transfer to the Welsh, Welsh Fusiliers? All I got was the biggest rollicking of my career. Genuinely, I've never had one like that since. Uh, and a, an assignment ordered at 50 Missile Regiment. Uh, so I tipped up there a few months later and joined the Special Defence Group. And Lee Chapman, one of your previous guests, will have spoken to the viewers about that organization was basically it. they fulfilled the role of infanteers guarding the nuclear missiles when they were mobile and static really highly trained individuals brecon trained high caliber guys uh, and i enjoyed being there but it wasn't really for me because no matter how good they were on the ground we also spent a lot of time doing block jobs and uh, cleaning land rover screens which wasn't what i joined the army to do so i was looking for a way out uh, and later that year Encouraged by my troop sergeant, an advert came up looking for volunteers for special OP selection. Nobody really knew a great deal about it, apart from the fact that nobody from 50 Missile Regiment had passed it, including the Brecon-trained individuals that had gone on it. But I had nothing to lose, so I volunteered. And there was a drive to get numbers on the course. And there were a number of us from uh, 50 Missile Regiment that went on the selection in the new year. Fortunately for me, I also started the basic SDG course in the January which was six weeks of really quite arduous infantry training. Fortunately for me, I had that as a beat-up, and I went on uh, the, the special OP selection right at the end of that course, along with another number of other guys. When you did the original course, it was one-week selection. If you got through that, then you were allowed to start the course. But obviously, you could be removed at any stage. But you had the opportunity on the Wednesday of that, that one-week selection to take yourself off it. When we reached that point, everybody from 50 Missile Regiment decided they were going to go. And me, just being bloody-minded, uh, said, I'll stay here till till the end of the week. Uh, unfortunately, I got a, an unconditional pass and, and started the course. That week, and I still look at it back, back on it now as probably the most important week of my career because it set the foundations for everything I achieved after that. Got through the selection course, not massively strongly they could have been me on a few occasions but i think geordie watson the uh, infantry psi saw some potential and stuck with me and for the next four years then i was in the patrols from gunner to bombardier following the very positive examples of those uh, that i work for then there was some real high caliber role models amongst those individuals both in fifth regiment and three two regiments op troops and if you followed those examples you weren't going to go far wrong not just them everyone that i worked with was good in one way or another and i learned a lot from from those that i had the, the honor to serve with at that at that stage and then after four years in the patrols i then went to back to 17 train regiment as a bombardier instructor uh, day one 
RSM's interview, I walked into the RSM's office. I knew who was stood in front of me, but none other than the then RSM, Jin Jives, who was my troop, um, uh, troop commander <laughs> when it was in basic training, who clocked me straight away because obviously I've got some rem- memorable features. And we actually had a really good laugh about it. And I admitted to him that he was right, that my future was, well, I was better off in the Gunners. Um, and that was definitely proven over time. I did that for two years. And in 1991, I returned to the battery just in time to hand everybody a can of beer as they were getting off the coach from Up Granby, only to receive a, a day-on-day slating uh, for the next few months, which culminated on Remembrance Day that year, because I, I think I was the only one without a golf medal or any medal at that stage. And it was absolutely relentless. I remember the worst part was after PT, you're the only one without a tan. And you're <laughs> being Welsh, you don't have an actual tan anyway. No, I was the uh, proverbial milk bottle. And it was another excuse just for, for some ribbing. Uh, and you've, you've, you had to have thick skin in, in those days. But the, one of the plus side of having gone to Woolwich for two years is um, I was actually the only full screw that had completed his education for promotion, which sent me straight to the top of the promotion list. So at the back end of that year, I was fortunate enough to promote a sergeant. I then spent four years as a patrol commander, covering as a troop staff sergeant at times, for, certainly for the last year of that, which was one of my favorite jobs. Absolutely brilliant job, brilliant experience working with, with top guys. Uh, we're actually in a role where you've got nobody looking over your shoulder all the time. I then promoted to staff sergeant, stayed within the special OPs, promoted again to WO2 rapidly after that, and was sent on the gunnery careers course, which is a year-long course at the Royal School of Artillery doing technical things such as survey, MRS, UAV, sound ranging, radar, all those things that I had no idea of before I went on there. I had no technical background at all. The most technical thing I'd done before going on that course was tune a PRC 320, which whilst it had its challenges was <laughs> was nowhere near as complex complexes of some of the things we stepped into um, and this course turns out all the sort of the technical subject matter experts on all the royal artillery disciplines and it's a quite a prestigious course to get on isn't it that's right um i think most of the people that, that do the course went on to you know, make, make w01 and commission there afterwards i didn't want to stay at the school despite coming top of the course uh, and i f- was fortunate enough to get a posting as a tsm of the phoenix troop in 39 regiment which had just formed up, ready to take on the equipment uh, after a lull in its existence. Uh, I had 76 people, uh, men and women, and I'd never served in a normal battery, normal role before. And that that job was the making of me because I really learned how to be a sound major during those those couple of years, which was really beneficial because at the end of that, I then got the job that I'd coveted for a long time, which was to go back to 473 battery as the battery sound major. Really busy two years. A Jedi test, and I think anybody who's done a battery sergeant major job will say the same. Probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever done, not just because of the work-related pressure, but the pressure you put yourself under. Because it was a job I'd coveted in an organization where I cared about my reputation, I put myself under a significant amount of pressure. But it's also exacerbated by the fact that if you do well in the job, you're likely to promote the W1 out of it as well. And obviously, like most people who are in those roles, you want to achieve some sort of reward for your efforts, but you've got to be careful what you wish for because it was um, it, it stripped me and it was uh, I was very very tired at the end of the job. Great job, I think. It, but I, I think as one of our other guests, um, I can't remember. Which, I think it was John Holden, one of the former battery commanders of Four Seven Three, said that the more highly motivated and highly trained the troops, the more difficult it is a job of leading and managing them for 
obvious reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably one for another day. But I saw how hard the battery commanders worked as well during my time there. And I only got to appreciate the sacrifices they made individually and career-wise towards the latter end of my time in the battery because I took it for granted as a young soldier that they should do that. Well, actually, they didn't have to. but a lot of them went above and beyond. Maybe maybe more on that uh, on another day. Fortunately, I did promote to W01. I went to 3-2 Regiment as the RSM, did Optosca and Optalic 1, both of which K-Battery were deployed on. Commissioned at that stage, was lucky enough to go back to 5 Regiment, BKP Battery. I did Regimental Career Management Officer for a bit and then Regimental Training Officer before then being assigned to 4th Regiment as Quartermaster Technical. The biggest reward, though, was whilst I was QM Tech in the summer before I departed there, I'd been getting uh, some engagement with my career manager at APC uh, because they wanted me to volunteer to do the Intermediate Commander Staff course. And up until that point, I said quite clearly that after having spent a year on GCC, I didn't want to spend another year in a classroom. But I had come round to it uh, after a bit of careful persuasion by the by the chain of command. But the then CO of 5th Regiment called me and asked me, would I like to go back to 5th Regiment as BCK battery? Uh, and I was uh, running to the promotion board that, that year. For me, that was a no-brainer. A year in a classroom or, or go and be a battery commander. And I was fortunate enough to be selected for promotion and that job at the end of the year. Uh, and, I, and a few months later, I found myself as battery commander of K battery taking over about halfway through their pre-deployment training before deploying with them on Op Herrick 11 to Afghanistan. Did that tour. We took on Base I-Star, which again might be one for another podcast, but it's not really something that would normally land within the gunner's area of responsibility, but basically it was managing all of the uh, static surveillance systems, the mouse-mounted cameras, balloon-mounted cameras, etc. through theatre. Managed to get the American PGSS deployed into Helmand as well. Is that that big balloon yeah. that used to fly above? Yeah. yeah. Bottom line is we had trained to go out there in a counter-IDF role with Mamba radar, LCMR, sound ranging, Cobra radar. Um, and we had to retrain during that deployment to take on base I-star systems, find it all because it was spread all around theatre, broken, not being used properly. Um, it was a real job of work and a great credit to the soldiers and officers of K-Battery and the tasks that they undertook there. Difficult lines of communication, but they'd achieved a lot by the end of the tour. We were fortunate enough, or I was fortunate enough, to be extended for a year as, as BC and take them back out on Op Herrick 15, where we really got to see the whole base I-star piece having evolved uh, with a network across theatre where you could, in one PB, look at the PGSS footage of uh, a site a long, long way across within in Helmand, allowing decision makers to make really informed decisions based upon the imagery they were able to be provided with, track stuff over distance, all things that we couldn't have dreamed of at the beginning of Op Herrick 11. Great credit to 5th Regiment for what they did. I think one of the problems you've got as well is you never train with this kit in a combined arms scenario. So a lot of the infantry and attached arms are just unaware of its existence and don't understand what you can offer them. Um, I remember when I was with K Battery in Alamara, I think 2004, I had a run-in with the Camp RSM because he wanted to pull my guys out. Um, we had wet locating radar. And he wanted to pull my guys out and put them in Sangers. Quite right, he wanted us to play a part. But part of that was leave the crews who couldn't detect the incoming fire. And he didn't realize how accurate we could detect 
I can't remember the grid, something like a 10 figure grid or something, Mark. Yeah. Really correct me. Absolutely. 10 figure grid rather than somebody in a sign, I guess, and then point the compass where they think it's come from. Yeah. Did you have that problem out in Afghanistan out there as well, selling the, the role and the kit? Um, I think the selling part really shifts towards pre deployment training, and it depends how integrated you can become and how much equipment you can put at the battle group's disposal during mission specific training. We were fortunate and we were able to put quite a bit of kit on the ground, but what it was very difficult to replicate was the base I style network and that ability to transfer imagery and move decision making around couldn't really realize what was at a commander's disposal until they got to theater and then it was embraced for a variety of good reasons because it saved lives it gave us a tactical advantage enabled us to stay one step ahead in in many areas enabled us to dominate ground and have an understanding what what was going on there which previously was unachievable i could, could down slight rabbit hole in Op Herrick 11, base I-Star systems were trickling into theatre. Most of the casualties from IED seeding were taking place in Sanging, but the theatre priority was to put stuff into Nadi Ali. That was, that was really hard. But towards the back end of the tour, we were able to start putting kit into Sanging, able to maintain eyes on areas that previously they just either couldn't go down or the risk of doing so was really, really significant. It made a massive impact in, in that respect. BC was the best job for me ever. Huge honour. I had a great team. The CEO at the time, John Musgrave, the DRA said to him, because LEs weren't getting command of equipment batteries at that time, told him it would be at his own it would be on his own head if it went wrong. Fortunately for both of us, that didn't happen. And I think I paid back his, his faith in spades, but I'm, I'll be forever grateful that he showed that faith in me in the first place. Once I finished BC, I then moved to QM Tech, sorry, QM of an MRS regiment because I needed to improve my G4 portfolio, apparently. Um, I think for the listeners, what they have to understand is what, what a QM is. The QM is like the computer that says no normally. <laughs> it won't let you have anything. I'd like this. No, you can't have it. No, it's that's, not like that nowadays. As it was explained to me, it says store, not give. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not like that anymore. Mark's bristling at that one, Kev. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe I'm more of a G4 convert than I, than I realised. On the same day that I turned up there as quartermaster, we then found out that I would be assigned about 10 months later to the Royal Artillery Manning Brick in the Directorate Manning Army and Army Headquarters, dealing with all manners sorry, all matters related to gunner mag, manning, inflow, outflow, promotions, all that sort of thing. Um, and I had to go and do my sort of staff apprentice in there. That was two years hard grind, but I learned an awful lot in there. And it teed me up nicely for my sort of final regular job. I was fortunate enough to be promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. And I went up to the Army Personnel Centre in Glasgow to be the career manager for late entry officers and engaging from WOs who'd applied for a commission through to Lieutenant Colonels, who, again, who'd been fortunate enough to be selected for promotion and helping them to find suitable employment. Um, so, yeah, three years, HGV licence. I did get it. I never drove one after I passed my test. Um, <laughs> and then I got, managed to get back to Pembrokeshire. Here we are. Mate, I think um, for a, a lad from the Valleys that left school, did you leave school with any qualifications? No, uh, Again, might be a slight rabbit hole, but when I came from a very poor family, I had started working on farms when I was 13 in order to close myself, and I was the only one bringing money into the house. The first motorbike accident that I had made sure I missed all my exams as well, so I actually left school with nothing after actually being quite a bright kid and then forgetting that I had a reasonable amount of intelligence till later on in my, my career when I obviously got the opportunity to, to demonstrate it. 
Well, you didn't do too bad, mate. I'll hats off to you for that. And I think what your story does prove is when you read all this nonsense about the army recruiting kids to be cannon fodder, the army also recruits a lot of people and gives them huge opportunities. And for you to go from a private soldier all the way through to a lieutenant colonel is, is a huge achievement. So, and you know, the army gave you that opportunity. Obviously, you worked hard for it, but the army gave the opportunity. Thanks, Charlie. So, actually. Sorry, go on. Yeah, and I should say I was really lucky. I've had role models throughout my career and I've had people who've provided me with guidance and support at appropriate stages in my career as well. And I've always had good teams alongside of me. You get you achieve nothing on your own. And I learned that some time ago. It's those around you, particularly the further you go up in rank that do the graft. You just pull the strings. You really are dependent on other people if you want to have a successful career and you need to look after them. So it'd be a missed opportunity for us not to sing the praises of uh, the Royal Regiment of Artillery because there's three gunners here. So before we get into the main part of the pod, we're just going to cover some facts about the regiment we used to belong to, collectively referred to as the Gunners. So I thought I'd kick off with some quotes first because we all love a good quote. Artillery Conquers and Infantry Occupies by GFC Fuller, a very famous tactician, sort of pre-Second World War. The harder the fighting and the longer the war, the more the infantry and, in fact, all the arms lean on the gunners. That's from General Bernard Montgomery, who should need no other introduction. And finally, great battles are won with artillery, and that one was by Napoleon Bonaparte. And during the Second World War, the Germans assessed the Royal Artillery as the most professional arm of the British Army and said that its gunners were accurate, effective and efficient in providing fire support for their armoured and infantry colleagues, better than that in any other army. So high praise indeed. And the Royal Artillery in the Second World War was huge. There were 960 Royal Artillery regiments during the Second World War with over 1 million men. Its size fell to 250,000 in 1945. You, also, you, can't, you can't imagine it's huge, that isn't it? size. When you compare that the armed forces today, even when you start looking at Americans, when you start talking about a million soldiers in the Royal Artillery alone. And what's the army now? Eighty-two thousand. Yeah, complete yeah. army. Eighty-two thousand yeah. with a, with a twenty-five thousand reserve. I'm also going to take this opportunity to destroy some myths. So the Royal Artillery wear a white lanyard on their shoulder, and the common myth from everybody else in the army: this is for cowardice. It's not okay. And the Royal Engineers don't wear our old lanyard. For saving our guns is another common myth. And uh, and the gunners were often referred to as drop shots because we get the artillery range wrong and drop shot amongst our colleagues on our own side. And there's an old one here, not heard it for years actually, when they referred to the Royal Artillery as planks. And I think Kev will correct me here, he's a bit of a story. And I think this refers back to the First World War where the artillery was supposed to use their dead under the gun wheels in order to break yeah, a stable platform. That's it, yeah. And I think the drop shot pick come from, um, again, during the First World War, as the barrels got more and more worn because of the, the, the enormous barrages, they would start to decrease in range just because they didn't have the obturation as it wasn't. You could tell you've been a gunner, can't you, on the guns. So, yeah. And drop, there's never a drop shot anyway. That's just danger close. Other innovations also. I mean, during the Second World War, the, the Royal Artillery um, perfected or introduced aerial observation and self-propelled artillery. The first dedicated air observation post unit was established by a gunner officer, Major Charles Baisley. And the key difference between what was happening at the time and the Army Cooperation Squadrons was the Aero P pilots were also Royal Artillery officers. The RAF provided technicians to service the aircraft and the equipment for the officers and adjutants, but the rest of the unit was provided by the Army, including obviously signalers and drivers. 
Uh, and a further unusual feature of the air observation post squadrons, uh, all pilots were officers. They were nearly all captains, so quite a low rank inside the, the artillery. Since most operations were carried out separately by individual flights. So you're talking about a pilot also being able to direct fire. Um, Do they fly in the ruin? Yeah. So he's yeah. got a direct fire, yeah. fly the I mean, aircraft. I, I believe that sometimes they might have a signaler, but they're, they're only very small aircraft yours yeah. here. And small. Um, well, slow is probably an advantage because you need to be able to see the target. You can, if you fly too quick, you're going to fly over it. You can't loiter. And that was always a, always going to be a challenge, I believe. Um, so during the Second World War, British Aero P units used light, fixed-winged aircraft, most exclusively several marks of austere aircraft. These were low-speed, highly manoeuvrable, small size, and lightweight so it had a little bit of a loiter. It was able to slow right down so it could observe a target. Uh, but with that also come dangers. They were unarmed. And the standard tactic of dealing with enemy fighter aircraft was to fire very low, normally about 30 feet above the ground, around a wood or a hill. Uh, and this did protect them from, obviously, fighters. Because, again, because they could fly so slow and a fighter couldn't reduce speed, obviously that... that helped him a little bit as well but also caused casualties because when you're flying so low you're going to bump into things and is that, uh, is that, is that the official term i bumped into something yeah i bumped into a tree <laughs> i didn't know it was there <laughs> and, <laughs> and then other other sources of losses in combat was also when you're flying around the battlefield and you're directing bombardments well those shells are in the same space as the aircraft uh, and there was reportedly uh, a few hits or casualties from this. But I think it's a big airspace. You're manoeuvring around. You're quite low. But it was deemed as uh, – the amount of casualties was deemed quite low in comparison to other sorts of uh, operations. Well, here's a, here's a question for you, right? Yeah. yeah. This will test your knowledge. I think I remember from my observation post assistant course that, yeah. say, a gun has an 18K range. Yeah. It's firing at 18Ks. Yeah. You take a third of that range, and that's how high the round can go up in the air when it's firing at that range. I don't think it works all the time because it depends if it's a howitzer or a gun. It's firing oh, high angle. Or a low angle. Hole now. High but angle, point, low angle. The point is, charges. it fires quite high, doesn't it? it? It can fire quite high, but it can actually be quite a flat trajectory yeah. for full range. That's why. JTACs have got to deconflict airspace and all the rest yeah, of the firing. You've got, you've got to deconflict it because you've got you've got a high explosive shell or many high explosive shells flowing through the air, and you're in the in in the proximity of that pop in the lung. And not forgetting that the anti-aircraft units were firing artillery shells in the same sort of way against aircraft. Gunner regiments manned anti-tank guns on the front line and light anti-aircraft guns in divisional regiments to defence against air attack at home and abroad. The artillery also helped to protect convoys that brought essential supplies to Britain and anti-aircraft gunners had a finest style when they destroyed the majority of the V-1 flying bombs launched against Britain from June 1944. Post-World War II, gunners were involved in every major campaign from Korea to the Falklands and they provided regiments throughout Op Banner in the infantry role in Northern Ireland, and they were the first and last army casualties killed in Banner. I think the first one's Lance Bombardier, Robert Curtis, and then the last one was Lance Bombardier, Stephen Restrick. I think that's right. So, pulling back towards the podcast and the, the, the main event, for the full perspective, we need to set out what was happening at the time of this battle. 
After the Phoney War, the Battle of France began in earnest on the 10th of May 1940. To the east, the Germans invaded Holland and advanced westward. In response, the Supreme Allied Commander initiated Plan D, and British and French troops entered Belgium to engage the Germans in the Netherlands. French planning relied on imaginal line fortifications along the German-French border, but the line did not cover the Belgian border itself. German forces had already crossed most of the Netherlands before the French forces arrived, and they basically bypassed the Maginot Line. A series of Allied counterattacks failed to serve the German spearhead, which reached the coast on the 20th of May, separating the British Expeditionary Force, the French First Army and the Belgian Army in the north from the majority of French troops south of the German penetration. After reaching the Channel, the German forces swung north along the coast, threatening to capture the ports and trap the British and French forces. The Germans halted their advance on Dunkirk, known as the Holt Order, which ceased the Germans' advance on the port and consolidated to avoid an Allied breakout. The halt was for three days, which gave the Allies sufficient time to organise the evacuation and to build a defensive line. These strong points were manned by experienced troops of the British 2nd Division and a variety of scratch units. For the most part, the orders were simple, fight to the last man and the last round. And the heroic sacrifice of these rearguard units and of the French First Army at Lille allowed the bulk of the BEF and two French divisions to escape up the rapidly shrinking corridor to Dunkirk. Many of those men's reti- men retreating up the corridor received the simple instruction, every man for himself, make for Dunkirk. While more than 330,000 Allied troops were rescued, British and French military forces nonetheless sustained heavy casualties and were forced to abandon nearly all of their equipment. Around 16,000 French soldiers and 1,000 British died during the evacuation. The BEF alone lost some 68,000 soldiers during the French campaign. There were a number of battles as the Allies held the defensive line and they did launch some counterattacks. The resistance of Allied forces, especially the French forces, bought time for the evacuation of the bulk of the troops. The Wehrmacht captured some 35,000 soldiers, almost all of them French. These men had protected the evacuation until the last moment and were unable to embark. The War Office made the decision to evacuate British forces on the 25th of May. In the nine days from the 27th of May to the 4th of June, 338,226 men escaped, including 139,000 French, Polish and Belgian troops together with a small number of Dutch soldiers aboard 861 vessels, of which 243 were sunk during the operation. Fighter Command lost 106 aircraft over Dunkirk, and the Luftwaffe lost about 135 aircraft. The docks at Dunkirk were too badly damaged to be used, but the east and west moles, which are sea walls protecting the harbour entrance, were intact. It was decided to use the beaches and the East Mole to land the ships. This highly successful idea hugely increased the number of troops that could be embarked every day. And on the 31st of May, over 68,000 troops were embarked. The last of the British Army left on the 3rd of June. And Churchill insisted that the Navy went back for the French and the Royal Navy returned on the 4th of June to, to rescue as many as possible of the French rearguard. Over 26,000 French soldiers were evacuated on that day, but between 30,000 and 40,000 more were left behind and captured by the Germans. Around 16,000 French soldiers and 1,000 British soldiers died during this evacuation. 90% of Dunkirk was destroyed by the battle, and 40,000 British troops were captured.
Following the events at Dunkirk, German forces regrouped before commencing a renewed assault southward starting on the 5th of June. Although the French soldiers who had been evacuated at Dunkirk returned to France a few hours later to stop the German advance and two fresh British divisions had begun moving to France in an attempt to form a second BEF, the decision was taken on the 14th of June to withdraw all the remaining British troops in an evacuation called Operation Aerial. By the 25th of June, almost 192,000 Allied personnel, 144,000 of them British, had been evacuated through various French ports. Although the French army fought on, German troops entered Paris on the 14th of June. The loss of material on the beaches was enormous. The British army left enough equipment behind to fit out about 8 to 10 divisions. British press later exploited the successful evacuation of Dunkirk in 1940 and particularly the role of the Dunkirk Little Ships. Many of them were private vessels such as fishing boats and pleasure cruisers, but commercial vessels such as ferries were also used, and these were guided by naval craft across the channel and assisted in the official evacuation. Being able to move closer to the beachfront than larger craft, the little ships acted as shuttles to and from the larger ships, lifting troops who were queuing in the water, many waiting for shoulder deep in the water for hours. And the recent Dunkirk film really concentrated on that evacuation on the beachfront and you saw those soldiers queuing the water, the East Mole being used and the yeah. strafing of the beachhead by uh, the Germans. Mark, I believe one of your relatives was in Dunkirk at this time, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, my parents split up when I was quite young and I only found out in my mid-twenties that my grandfather was a, on my father's side, was a gunner. He was in 367 Battery, I think it was, 140 Regiment. It was a London Regiment. They were reservists. They formed up with us properly at the start of the uh, of the war and they uh, and they deployed with the BEF and actually they were on the line uh, right alongside K battery on the retreat to Cassel two guns from K battery actually joined 140 regiment so there was a bit of a loose connection there that I was unaware of previously and actually it was only doing a bit of research for this that I managed to put all that together my grandfather was uh, quite badly injured on the retreat from Cassel to Dunkirk but was obviously evacuated safely from there. Um, he sadly spent the majority of the rest of his life in and out of St. Dunstan's. And he was also paralysed as well from the chest down. So war uh, fell badly upon him and, and the family to an extent because there was very little welfare support in those days. And whilst he was in St. Dundan, Dunstan's or other rehabilitation centres, my grandmother, my father and his sister were following them around the country and there was no financial support for that. They had to make their own way there, find their own lodgings and find a way of uh, feeding themselves. And when he was uh, eventually released from that sort of care support system, although he did go in and out of St. Dunstan's for the rest of his life, and I think he actually passed away there, and, and they settled down, the remainder of their lives together were, was pretty hard because they lived on a very meagre pension and there wasn't the sort of support for veterans that we experienced in the last few decades. As a result, my father was a bit anti-war and, and not particularly keen on the army either. It was too late at that stage because I was already in. <laughs> but that was replicated up and down the country, wasn't it? Tens of thousands of people. And I'm not demeaning or uh, making the case for your grandfather any less than you've just stated, but uh, the shocking treatment of veterans post-First and Second World War was all over the place, wasn't it? Yeah, I think there was very little, there was little money to support them uh, and little appreciation of what they'd gone through. But you could also say that about, about many conflicts. What did surprise me about Dunkirk was when they were taking the French off at Dunkirk, they're very quickly being repatriated from the UK back to France to carry on fighting. And I didn't know that until I started reading about it. What, what within like a, a few days sort of yeah. thing? 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, so they were were evacuating them off the beaches of Dunkirk. Everyone got back to the UK. They're reorganizing people. And as we talked about the second operation to evacuate the British, they were bringing the French soldiers back to France to carry on with the fight. I mean, there's a couple of scenes in the Dunkirk film, the latest one, where there's British soldiers, officers stopping French soldiers getting on board vessels, and seemingly that did happen. And uh, there is a bit of a myth that the French gave up, but there's some French units fought exceptionally hard and exceptionally bravely, and they don't get the full credit for their their part in that holding action. No, if they they had given up, we wouldn't have got half the troops off. For the account of the Battle of Hogwarts... (laughs) (laughs) What's it called again? Hondigan. 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 For the account of the Battle of Hondigan, we're going to read directly from an article written in a US Army publication from January 1941, which itself was taken from the Royal Artillery Gunner magazine. On the 26th of May 1940, German forces were in full flood along the main road from St. Omer to Kassel in their thrust to the Channel ports. Strategically sighted and immediately in the direct line of their advance lay the village of Hondigan. To delay the enemy, it was vital to defend it, and the task was allotted to K-Battery RHA. The battery commander selected a small headquarters staff, an F-troop of four guns for the purpose, about 63 men in total. The guns were First World War Mark II 18-pounders, which had been modernised by the fitting of road wheels and pneumatic tyres. No infantry were available, and the only additional troops was a detachment of 80 men and one officer from a searchlight unit. The village formed a virtual outpost in a very widely dispersed British line and its defence was far from easy. The defenders' armament was restricted to their 18-pounder guns, Bren and Lewis machine guns and rifles. By that evening, final arrangements had been made. Two guns, I and J subsections, were posted on the outskirts of the village to command the roads by which the Germans would probably advance and two others were placed at critical points inside the town. Bren and Lewis guns were located in makeshift strong points, chiefly in the upper windows of houses. The battery headquarters was placed in a building in the middle of the town with radio trucks in the street immediately adjacent to it. The observation post was in the church tower in the village square. The night passed in an atmosphere of great tension. The scouts reported the German force concealed in woods only four miles away. Mark and I were both in the key batteries we discussed and uh, every year, whenever it can, the battery sends soldiers to Hondegum and they also, as part of that, they conduct a battlefield tour. And what's apparent when you get to Hondigam is how open the village is and how easily the German advance could be seen. And uh, when you go and look at the placement of these guns, they were very open, Mark, weren't they? 
Yeah, very much so. There's there's little cover outside of the uh, outside of the village. Um, flat open ground, agricultural. You've got hedges. You've got a few trees, a few small isolated houses and farm builds, buildings, but very very open. You can see for miles, and the church absolutely dominates the area. So the OP would have seen everything coming. So Kev, as a resident gun expert, eighteen pounder. How effective was it at this stage of uh, the war? I think I think what we have to remember is that the the eighteen pounders brought into service in nineteen oh four. You know, it was pulled by a team of horses had a wooden wheels. It was, you know, at that time it was modern, but by the time it came to the second world war and this battle, it was probably end of its service life. So we had this 1900s gun against, let's call it the most modern battle hardened tanks in the world. You know, they, they had armor plating, they had accurate guns, maneuverability. And you're talking about, like I say, a 40 year old gun, that was going to have to be manhandled with ammunition because they only really had AP rounds in recent times because obviously in the First World War, they only used shrapnel or HE because there was no German tanks. Yeah. So, you know, it was not designed for that sort of role at all. It was at the end of its life. And so these guys were sat behind these guns in the open effectively, uh, waiting for these German tanks to come along and about seven in the morning the panzers did approach from the southwest and INJ subsections at once engaged the enemy and destroyed several vehicles including two or three tanks within 10 minutes however the gunners had been overwhelmed by an avalanche of vehicles and tanks and the guns were put out of action and the crews killed or captured a motorcycle dispatch rider brought news of this disaster to battery headquarters at half past seven in the morning or 0730 hours in military terms Kev I should be saying that shouldn't I yes such a setback so early in the day was a serious matter and all considerations were now centred on the defence of the village itself. Armoured vehicles and supporting parties of German infantry began to penetrate its outer perimeter. The two remaining guns were immediately in action, registering hit after hit at short range on the enemy as they tried to place machine guns in house windows as they advanced. The enemy managed to get one machine gun into possession in the battery's cookhouse, but just as they were about to open fire, L subsection gun gallantly handled under intense fire with the same precision if it was on the ranges in practice, put a round straight through the cookhouse, effectively silencing the gun. The cookhouse was set on fire and all the day's food was destroyed, which is probably a blessing because we all know how good army food is. But the German gun was knocked out and later the dead crews were discovered in the embers of the building. Another enemy gun was located by K subsection gun behind a farmhouse, which had served as a park for the battery vehicles. Although some British soldiers might have been there, it was essential to silence the gun, so the 18-pounder was trained on the farmhouse, and the first round brought the whole place down in a shower of bricks. Another four rounds were fired to make sure, and the machine gun wasn't heard from again. It's amazing there that these guys, and there's a lot mentioned about Blitzkrieg and the aggressiveness of the Germans, but I think what you can see from what's been discussed there is the determination, bravery, and sheer guts manhandling guns through rubble in the streets and engaging those German MG42s. Yeah, under fire all the time. The guns are going to draw fire from everything. Everyone's going to be focused on it. And the only way to make a gun work is to get behind it, crew it, and fire it. So, you know, you're very exposed. I think it's worth making a comment on how small that town centre is, where most of the action took place inside the village. And I know it's been referred to as a town in places, but there's no way you could really compare it with a town in size. It's a large village in reality. I think, I think it's also that gun, as we've talked about, is a little bit old against the most modern 
World War II tank of the time. To make it work, to be the most effective it can be against a tank like that, it's point-blank range. You know, you, you've got to let the tank get as close as possible for it to penetrate the armour. That it must be absolutely frightening to watch a tank bearing down you before you fire. Another thing to mention is, uh, we mentioned at the start that they were armed with Bren guns and Lewis guns, so they would be providing quite a bit of suppressing fire as well. And I think it's probably a good indicator of the, the decent training that the British had that, Mark, your grandfather was given a prize, wasn't he, for yeah, Lewis gun? Yeah, I've recently found some uh, some trophies at my father's house uh, where he was awarded best Lewis gun team in, in 1937 and some other trophies that are they're all basically small arms orientated. So they clearly did a lot of small arms training and were very proficient with the weapons that they had available. Go back to the British Expeditionary Force in the Lee Enfield. I mean, the Lee Enfield was capable of a higher rate of fire than the German rifle uh, as well. And the uh, British Army at the time concentrated on marksmanship. So there's no doubt these gunners despite, were very good at sort of infantry-style fighting as well. One British driver who was in the farmhouse had a miraculous escape and rejoined his unit. Both K and L guns were now hotly engaged, firing point-blank at 100 yards using fuse number one. So close were the Germans that the gun crews were being attacked with hand grenades. But casualties, apart from the loss of I and J subsections remained small and only one man having been killed with two wounded. Both guns were in very exposed positions, but they maintained a fast rate of accurate fire. Every round took effect. and about 1,300 hours, large numbers of German light and medium tanks were seen from the top of a church approaching Cassel and Hazelbrook. It was the last observation made from that position for the enemy about this time began to shell the, sh- the church and demolished it. In the thick of the fighting, one British gun through error fired a round of smoke. It burst in the village street and all the ranks expected that the Germans would make use of the smokers cover for a general advance. So the two gun detachments fired as quickly as possible round after round into the centre of the smoke cloud. It now dispersed, however, without the enemy having seized his opportunity. Machine gun fire was now coming from all sides, Both 18-pounders frequently had to change their positions, their crews manhandling them up and down the village streets and firing from all angles. At this critical moment, D Troop of the battery on the slope of Mancasil, some three miles to the north, and controlled by radio from the village, opened up a defensive barrage. They did have some support on the outside and they did have comms to that. When this battery started firing, they were sort of badly positioned on a forward slope and we'll see from... The next part of the account that they paid a high price for supplying support to the the unit parts of the unit in Hondigam. I think it might be worth uh, just commenting on the fact that uh, that the streets running into the centre of Hondigam are very very narrow, so it would have been difficult to uh, manoeuvre tanks and and vehicles up there, and they were very much channeled. There's only so much you could get down there. So K battery having control of the village at that stage put them in it put them in a very commanding position and obviously bar- rubble falling into the streets is, is creating natural obstacles as well isn't it as a, as when you knock a tank out it becomes a roadblock so accurate was d troops shooting from the hillside that although at one time their shells were dropping within 50 yards of the two guns in the village not a single round fell among their own troops Unfortunately, this firing brought down devastating German counter-battery fire, which knocked out three of D Troop's four guns. The remaining section continued to fire, though only one round each five minutes, as its ammunition supply was nearly exhausted. The German activity as well seemed to die down a little. Battery drivers, armed with rifles, did some excellent work taking pot shots at the enemy from windows. At 15.30 hours, it became apparent that the small garrison could hold out no longer. 
ammunition was almost gone. All the food supplies had been destroyed. No reinforcements except a small detachment of Fife and Forfer Yeomanry had appeared. And finally, they were in great danger of being surrounded. So at 16.15 hours, the withdrawal was ordered. The two guns and the wounded men were set on, sent off ahead for a rendezvous at San Silvestre. The remainder followed later by a different route. At San Silvestre, however, the main road running through the village was found to be held by German medium tanks. Positions were hastily found around the church where a group of some 20 RASC men armed with rifles and Bren guns joined the action. The enemy were by now aware of the British troops' arrival and a volley of hand grenades suddenly started from behind the tombstones in the graveyard. Germans appeared on all sides. The troop commander decided they could only be dislodged by a direct charge. Two parties with bayonets fixed advanced around each side of the churchyard wall, each man shouting, as ordered, at the top of his voice. A real roar went up. The psychological effect was just what they'd hoped for. Three or four Germans were shot, and the rest, throwing away their rifles, broke away in a panic and were routed. And I think Cave Battery is one of the few British Army units that appeared in the Victor comic in the 60s or 70s, and it's called the Battlers of Battery K, and it centres round the punch-up at Hondigam. There's a classic little bit in that where it shows you the bayonet attack and the Germans running off in terror. Classic comic article, and it's often used as a leaving presentation for people when they when they finish their time within the battery both guns were now again brought into action from the graveyard and fired what little ammunition was left into the neighboring houses one gun was limbered up to its quad for a change of position but both gun and the quad were blown to pieces by two direct hits from a german gun firing along the road though the situation then began to look desperate the men were in no way disheartened and were still full of fight Charges were made by small parties against houses where Germans were hidden, and Kay's one remaining gun continued firing till its last round had been expended. Darkness was coming on, and lights were winking here and there in the dusk, and it was thought that the Germans were bringing up reinforcements. The decision was to run for it. The men piled into remaining lorries, and L subsection gun was put out of action and abandoned. The British vehicles drove off under fire from German tanks in the fields. There was a left turn, then a right turn on the road commanded by a German machine gun, this S-turn had to be taken at speed. The first vehicle was ditched at the second curve and the occupants scrambled out and were taken into the third truck. The second vehicle, meanwhile, had negotiated the first turn, but the driver missed the second and went straight through a hedge into the field. As the ground was dry, he drove on, crossed the field and rejoined the road where it skirted the field at a further point. And I think you can see from that how that was a very much a last, very last minute withdrawal and they uh, nearly killed a few people with some panic driving. Escaping at last from the German machine gun fire, the convoy went on in comparative safety and after a mile or so, startled the party of the East Riding Yeomanry by arriving alive by the very road they'd just mined. One of the trucks had actually been blown up, but the occupants escaped injury. In this secondary engagement at St. Salice, which lasted two and a half hours, all ranks showed once again the greatest bravery and coolness which was all the more remarkable following as it did on the day's continuous fighting. All through the heat of battle, the men of K Battery took orders and carried them out with the same expenditure and precision as though they were on the barrack square at home. A heavy toll was paid in casualties, but the gallantry of those who fell will remain for all time an incentive and example to all the ranks of the Royal Regiment. The um, American author of this piece also commented on a number of aspects of the action which are relevant today and even relevant when you're looking at it in Ukraine. They were saying what would have happened if they had made better use of obstacles. Now, obviously, the battery didn't have time. But you could see in Ukraine now where they were welding homemade girders and uh, bringing in barriers to the roads to stop the, the Russians advancing. 
And we've already touched on this, but uh, he emphasised again that all personnel must be given real, not nominal, target and combat practice with rifle and machine gun. And I think you can see the effectiveness of that at Hondigam. He does yeah. comment. Uh, go on, Kev. Yeah, I think looking at our time, we were very lucky in our unit. We had a hell of a lot of small arm training. But in other units, it was all the focus on the equipment or on if they're on the gun unit, that was on the gun. But it wasn't necessarily on the small arms and those small tactics that required. And we talked about this before. A gun position can only be defended by the people on the gun position. There was no one else to do that. And I think perhaps the emphasis sort of switched, especially in the Cold War, where it was all fire the guns, use the equipment, but forgetting those very basics. So when your gun is out of action, you then become an infantier. And, and the lessons were there post-war. You know, there's a, I forget the name of that. Is it 4-5 Field Regiment in the Battle of Imjin where they were firing it over open sites? Yeah, 25 pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Across the fields at advancing yeah. Chinese infantry. Absolutely. It's where the gun, I think traditionally everyone thinks the gun's been so far back, but they forget the rate of the wire gun needs a long range is to get it as far forward as possible to use the range into enemy territory, not to hide our guns as far back as possible. Because you're cutting the range down. And then on John Tullock's podcast about Vietnam, he mentioned uh, the beehive rounds that the yeah. Australians had in yeah. Vietnam were like big shotgun rounds. And yeah. the fact that, that at the Battle of Coral and Balmoral, the Vietnamese infiltrated through the wire and were attacking the, the gun positions. So what gallantry awards did the battery receive? And what was the honour title that they received? So they were given the honour title Hondigam. And um, we haven't really talked about this, but Mark, as our guest, is going to... Tell us a little bit about battery honour titles. What are battery honour titles, the Royal Artillery Mark? Um, well, most military units will emblazon the name of a battle or operation, their battle honour, um, on its colours, which might be its flags, its drums, uniforms, or other sort of accessories where ornamentation is possible. But uh, the Royal Artillery don't have colours in the British military tradition, and we were ordered awarded honour titles instead. And those honour titles are permitted to use, be used as part of their official nomenclature. So, for example, K. Hondigam Battery, Royal Artillery. Uh, our colours are normally considered to be the guns or our main equipment. The loss of a gun in battle, the Royal Artillery through centuries, is, is seen as a great shame. And when the guns are on parade, uh, we're seen as right of the line above all, and we take precedence above all other army units. So the battery suffered heavy losses with F Troop alone losing 45 men out of 63. However, they did receive a number of decorations with the battery commander, Major Hoare, being awarded the Distinguished Service Order, Captain Teacher, the Military Cross, the Battery Sergeant Major Millard receiving the, Dis the Distinguished Conduct Medal, and Gunnar Kavanagh was honoured with the Military Medal. In addition, three men were mentioned dispatches. Uh, and a few other awards were written up but not given, and you uncovered them doing a little bit of research, Mark. What were they? Yeah, I understand. Sergeant Heaton was recommended for a Distinguished Conduct Medal, three others for a military medal, uh, and a couple of mentioned dispatches for a single uh, event. That's, that's quite high. And obviously the bar's set high for such awards. Clearly the battery did okay considering the scale of the conflict and the time they were involved in it. Yeah, I think you can see the scale of the fighting and the recognition given by those awards there. K battery is quite unusual in having a, a battery honour title that's only 80 years old and we trace back to the Second World War. It's also unusual in that it has very close ties with the village of Hondigam even to, even to today. So, Mark, can you give a, an outline of how that manifests itself? Yeah, certainly. Uh, the relationship 
between K Battery and the village of Hondigham has endured. When uh, you and I were in the history room at K Battery last week, we were going through the, the albums and there was evidence there of a visit in 1952 by the serving battery, which also included W01, then RSM Millard, who was obviously the BSM at the Battle of Hondigham. So it started fairly soon after the end of the, the war. Uh, and that relationship and friendship has continually been continually been fostered by the village and, and the battery, which ensures the sacrifices of the fallen and the injured aren't forgotten, but also ensures that serving personnel are aware of and have pride in their heritage and their forebearers. Hundigam Day is normally recognised by the battery by they send a small detachment to lay a wreath at the Gunner Memorial in Hyde Park. Also in attendance there, you might have people who live and work in, in London who make the trip to be there, um, and also some of the family members of the fallen. The larger bit, though, is clearly the battery visit to Hondigam, which takes place every year that the battery can get there in as large a scale as possible in terms of what they have in terms of troop availability and what they can finance. Um, but normally, they'll get as many out there as they can. There's normally a parade in the village, a memorial service. Uh, in attendance will be the locals, dignitaries, school children, French veterans, and they'll hold their own service concurrent to respect their own uh, their own fallen. Family members of the fallen uh, make the trip out to France routinely, and we've also been lucky enough to have uh, veterans there. During the two trips that we did when I was battery commander, we were really fortunate to have the former gunner, Jack Johnson, who was a member of LSUB, do both those visits with us. And as part of the visit, you'll obviously do a battlefield tour, so you educate the soldiers about what had happened on the 27th of May. And having somebody there that was actually a member of one of those sections involved in that conflict in the town centre really, really helped to, to bring it to life. Sadly, Jack's no longer with us, but he left a indelible imprint on those he had the opportunity to uh, speak to during during our, our trips to, to Hondigam. It's normally a bit of a social, hosting in the village hall, the bar, normally very well, some sports competitions, and real friendships created and bonds maintained. It's not just about going there and, and doing your bit to mark the occasion. There is a genuine friendship between the battery and, and the villagers. And don't forget, the officers will do a turnover every two or three years. There are soldiers that spent their whole career in K Battery. And you can imagine when they've been going year on year or as often as they can, how strong that bond, that friendship and their pride in that association with Hondigam is. They also battery will go to San Silvestre and, and visit there and lay a wreath because there are fallen members of the battery there as well. There can't there's be a number of soldiers buried in the Hondigam churchyard as well from the battery. That's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, buried in, in both locations. There can't be many subunits that have retained such a strong bond with the people in the area in which its battle honour was awarded. I appreciate it's a relatively new battle honour in 1940. We owe a great deal to the, those that have served in K Battery, have worked so hard over the years to keep it going, keep finding the money to be able to visit and keep putting the effort in because it is a, a, a challenge to get out there sometimes. Equally, the village of Hondigam have always been welcoming, always turn out in, in numbers. And I think both parties are very grateful for the for the efforts, effort that each put in to maintaining that, that bond, which is very special. I have to agree. The time I went, uh, I was turned up there and I was taken aback by how receptive and welcoming and uh, the really 
obvious good relations with the unit that were there. And as you mentioned earlier, Mark, there's even a street Rue Decay Hondigan battery in Hondigan itself. So they've named the street after the battery. Well, as usual, we will finish off with Des Isle of Dits. So thank you, Mark, for joining us on this episode. So, Mark, what is your choice of book, film and luxury item? Um, well, well, unlike you two well-read fellows, I rarely get the time to do any reading. So what I'm going to nominate is the book, the, the most referred to book I've ever owned, which was uh, Lofty Wiseman's SAS Survival Handbook, which a lot of people from the OP troops in Germany will be very familiar with. Special observers require the ability to escape and evade and obviously resist uh, interrogation if required, live off the ground, get back to your own lines. And combat survival training was bread and butter for us. We all had to go to the Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol School and do the uh, survival course there with the resistance to interrogation. And once you reach sergeant, we had to go and do the Army Combat Survival Instructors course at, uh, at Hereford. And the battery routinely delivered combat survival training in Germany, the UK, elsewhere in Europe. Lofty Wiseman's survival handbook was the go-to reference material when preparing and delivering survival demos because not all aspects of it are instinctive. We don't all live in woods uh, or in in the jungle uh, and survive for weeks and months on end. You have to re-educate yourself and prepare quite meticulously for things you're going to deliver for other people. I think most of us had a copy on our bookshelf or the Army Combat Survival Instructor course notes. And there would be a lot of people now very embarrassed to say how many copies of Combat Survival magazine they also bought as well, (laughs) which is making us all sound like complete losers. But actually, it was one of the more enjoyable aspects of the job. What's your film choice then to beat the book? There's been some cracking choices on this, and it's getting hard to pick something that hasn't gone before. So my choice is Cockleshell Heroes, which uh, is a fictionalized version of Op Frankton, based on the raid on German shipping in Bordeaux Harbour in 1942, where Royal Marine Commandos infiltrated 140 kilometres in small flimsy kayaks, cockles, launched from a submarine at sea. And it had uh, Herbie Hasler and Bill Sparks as technical advisors, and they were the uh, two survivors of that, of that mission. And the aim of the operation was to destroy shipping uh, using limpet mines and block the harbour. I think, as we all know, of the 10 uh, commandos who launched at sea, two were lost at sea, four were captured en route, four made it to the harbour, two of whom were captured at the start of the E&E phase, and in total six people were, were executed by the Germans under Hitler's commando order, which was basically anyone caught behind the lines in uniform would be shot irrespective. And two survived after an 800-kilometre, four-month overland extraction which is a significant achievement. I can sort of loosely compare there that mission to the special OPs stay behind role because they went through a pretty arduous selection course. They had training on escape and evasion, had to maintain a high standard of fitness, etc., etc. And the likelihood of successful extraction was pretty slim. Even Mountbatten, who was head of combined operations at that stage, didn't think it would be successful. They moved by night, hid by day, no support, and they had the additional challenge of the sea. The book, Cockleshell Heroes, is actually much better than the film because the film stops at the start of the E&E, and the E&E was a significant achievement. And I'd, I'd commend the book by C.E. Lucas Phillips. It's only a short book. You could read it out with a couple of hours sat at an HLS waiting uh, for a helicopter, and he was a gunner officer in the First and Second World War. So bearing in mind that 
I've, I've talking about survival and the fact that I don't actually enjoy doing it. I don't like getting wet and cold. And moving on to my luxury item then, it is a good sleeping bag or sleeping system. Uh, I'm pretty confident I could survive in a survival situation <laughs> uh, and I've improvised most things in the past for demos, clothing, tools, sleeping bag. Never got quite right because no matter what you stuffed in it, you're always freezing and it's not a patch on a nice warm down dust bag. And I think I could sum up my career, or certainly the first 20 years it, with the evolution of the DOS bag and how it affected me, because I was given my first sleeping bag in basic training. We went to Pippingford Park, dug a trench. Mine got put into the sleeping bay. I went out on patrol. It poured down with rain. And when I came back, they hadn't done anything with my sleeping bag apart from allow it to sleep, soak up two foot of water. I then spent the rest <laughs> of the week with a soaking wet, very heavy DOS bag and hardly slept a wink. On the selection course for the special observers, got given another DOS bag. You weren't allowed to get in it. It had no zip. You had no roll mat and it had three feathers in it. Yeah. <laughs> So, you, again, you were very awake and very alert. After getting into the, uh, into the organization, you then had the, uh, the option of having a roll mat. People had them in various sizes. Either they go full, full length or they have just enough to cover your kidneys. So the rest of your dust bag got soaking wet anyway. And then I think after a year after being there, we went to uh, Grafenvor and I managed to get an American poncho liner which was a stuff of dreams. Everyone had one. And you felt like a real new intake gunner if you didn't. Um, and I've still got it. It's a brilliant bit of kit. Still have it in the boot of my car in the winter. Gore-Tex bivy bags then came in, adding to the luxury uh, value of, of a decent DOS bag. Inflatable roll mat, that was something special. But for me, the best one was the bouncing bomb, which which is the, the biggest sleeping bag you've ever seen. The size of it matches oh, yes, the name. Sure. You're all seasons alternatives that people used to buy, trying to kid themselves that they'd save a bit of space, but it would still be warm enough. It never worked. You could always tell the people that had the all-season sleeping bag. They were the ones with the teeth were chattering at three in the morning in a cold January morning in, in Germany. Warm sleeping bag came into its own. On exercise in the winter months, I always found room for it in my Bergen and gave somebody else the batteries to carry. And Iraq and Afghanistan, if you're in a desert, it's bloody cold at night. You need a decent dust bag best night's sleep punch you up roll mat out dust bag out warm food brew banter straight eight under the stars what more could a man ask for a straight eight what sort of exercise or ops are you on hf comms mate you don't work at night <laughs> i don't get eight hours now yeah that's because you're old you got in the middle of the night for the toilet <laughs> anyway moving swiftly on colin what's your choice for this week my choice this week is Mussolini has part of my downfall by Spike Milligan. And for younger listeners, which is probably MD not our age, Spike was a hugely influential comedian of the 1950s through to the 80s. And he was also a gunner for the, who served in the Second World War. And it's part of a series of book covering his service, including Rommel Gunner Who and Monty, My Partner, His Victory, which are another two great reads. I know Spike's humour can be marmite for people, but I think he's pretty good. The serious side to this, he was on the OPs in Italy, coming up through the... Italy advancing north, and he came under artillery fire from the Germans and ended up getting medevaced out with shell shock, as it was called at the time. Initially, his battery commander was reluctant to send him to the air as he reckoned the sound of guns would be good for his morale. <laughs> and when he describes that in the book, that's pretty good. They reckon Spike's shell shock morphed into PTSD and he became a lifelong sufferer of manic depression and had multiple nervous breakdowns after the war. A benefit to this 
It was also considered that his PTSD and his manic depression helped create the anarchic and influential comedy he helped devise with the goons. So, Kev, what's yours? Well, mine's not a book this week, but mine's the 1979 TV series Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which was written by John le Carre, starring Alex Guinness as George Smiley. Like the recent film that came out with um, of the same title, it's a Cold War classic. I think it would be considered slow, a slow story by today's standard of CGI and action, but it's a brilliant story, brilliantly told. And it was, it was written at the height of the Cold War, and it talks about, you know, we're going back into a Cold War now, so obviously this is all coming back to life again. TV series, I watched it when I was a kid, and then I watched Smiley's People, which was the second book by John le Carre as well featuring, again, Alex Guinness. But you may remember a while ago, I talked about one of my favourite books, was The Spy Coming from the Cold. Again, a John le Carre Cold War classic. And the film, excellent, and I talked about it, Richard Burton in the 60s playing the spy. For all those that want a little bit of Cold War drama, made during the height of the Cold War, you want a bit of Cold War drama, mate? They might just put the news on. <laughs> no, no, oh yeah, but it was it was the time. You know what I mean? There was there was something about the time. I think watching it now, you, people can't believe that the world was in that position. You know, we're going back to it a little bit with Ukraine and such like. But I think this will take you to that forty years of the Cold War when espionage was was the front line at the time. Anyway, Mark, thank you for coming on board and for helping us with this episode. Thank you, the listener, again. For your continued support and suggestions, please keep them coming. And our email and social media links are always at the bottom of our show notes. You can find us on the usual suspects, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you've downloaded us from iTunes or Spotify and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review, a good review, obviously. If it's a bad review, don't leave it. Uh, <laughs> or leave a, leave a review anywhere where you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical help with it through his company, ISAR. See you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.